0: These research is very complex. There's people doing all kinds of different things. And so to say physics is not making progress is often just completely ignoring huge swaths of the community that are making real progress. In other fields, like one person's working on a subject like, oh, someone's got that covered. I should go do something else. Whereas in particle physics, it tends to be, oh, everyone's thinking about dark matter. That's the thing I should be working on, dark matter. And it's like, yeah, that's that's a strategy for, for research that I find can be problematic when the motivation is just to be part of the
1: crowd. Welcome everyone to this Physics Insider edition of Into the Impossible. For the first time since the pandemic, your host, Brian Keating, goes live in our new University of California San Diego studio with theoretical physicist and fellow UC San Diego professor, Dan Green. Dan addresses the so-called crisis in physics head-on. Is fundamental physics in a problematic echo chamber, as has been suggested by past guests, including Lee Smolin, Lawrence Krauss, Eric Weinstein, Sabine Hassenfelder, and Neil Turok? Dan's Twitter exploded as he tweeted his picks for the most significant fundamental physics results of the last 40 years that did not win a Nobel Prize, arguing that physics is doing just fine. Decide for yourself as you enjoy a great discussion and learn some new physics in our very first in-person episode at our new studio. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors,
2: please, Hal. And I'm joined today with a renowned cosmologist, a collaborator, a colleague, Professor Dan Green. Welcome, Daniel, to the Into the Impossible podcast. Hi, Ryan. Great to see you. Good to see you, too. Today, we're talking about Nobel dreams, or maybe not Nobel dreams. We're talking about things that aren't necessarily Nobel recipients, but are potentially Nobel worthy. And it's really prompted by Daniel's amazing tweet storm of the month of December, which caused him to uh, really gain a tremendous amount of well-deserved attention for his perspicacity and everything that he does. He's an amazing uh, colleague, and I'm so glad that we poached him away. And I want to give him an introduction, but I want him to do it so I don't get anything wrong. And that will uh, commence right now. So, Dan, where do you come from? What's your origin story? We're cosmologists. You're a theorist. I'm an experimentalist. We've worked together on many projects, including the Simon's Observatory. And uh, what's your origin story? Tell, tell tell the audience
0: where did you uh, come from. So yeah, so I'm, uh, I grew up in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Um, I was uh, I, a science fairer and uh, enthusiast and amateur astronomer as a kid, and uh, stayed in Vancouver to go to the University of British Columbia for undergrad, and and there I you know, interacted with a bunch of the the local famous people, like Bill Unruh, who's famous for the Unruh radiation. Um, and uh, after after spending four years there, I was ready to make the big move to the United States for graduate school. And I went to uh, Stanford, um, where I uh, studied with Eva Silverstein, um, who's well-known in part because she's a MacArthur Award winner. Um, but uh, she is one of these interesting people who bridges the boundary between many fields. She's a string theorist uh, by training, but's really interested in cosmology. And while I was there, many other things like condensed matter physics. And so she's kind of a... Um, very broad person who liked to to investigate different interesting things. And so that rubbed off on me in a certain way. And so uh, after graduate school, I I moved to Princeton at the Institute for Advanced Study, and I tried a bunch of different fields out. And um, in part because of the presence of David Spergel and Matias Aldiaga, who are just some of the most brilliant people I've ever met, that kind of uh, their unique style of just kind of Doing everything in cosmology was really intoxicating and I kind of became a cosmologist from that from that point forward. And so from from there I went back to Stanford and then eventually to the University of Toronto, uh, at the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics. Where we poached you. Yes, indeed. And so I was there. I also got to meet meet Dick Bond, who's another just incredible cosmologist with great stories about the history of the subject that I had never been exposed to. So a lot of even in my list, a lot of the sort of what I was thinking of, you know, what were big things, I would think back to conversations with Dick where he would kind of been like, oh, at this time, it was really this thing is really what moves the field. And so that was a very useful perspective for me. And then I moved here in 2017 and I've been here. You've been here ever since.
2: And you're now associate professor, which means you're tenured, which means you could speculate and all sorts of crazy stuff like I like to do. Maybe have your own podcast someday. Uh, and certainly the, uh, the, you're a must-follow on Twitter. And uh, I, th- I recommend everybody do that because uh, Daniel is – he. Uh, I think you're unique in, in a lot of ways. You have a very high command of experimental results in the history of the experimental field. And I always say, and tell me what you teach your students, but I always say that experimental is my students should understand theory as well as your graduate students do but they're not required to create new theories. Do you feel, well, first of all, how do you react to that? Do you think uh, theorists should have to ex- understand experiments
0: but not do experiments? I think I'm, I mean, it's different people have different styles. So for me, there's always like, I don't think there's one right, right way to do it, but you know, what drew me to the subject of cosmology is the ability to go. So I rem- I can distinctly remember a meeting in Princeton where in the span of one meet- meeting, David Spurgle had kind of brought up why a telescope they were designing was going to have swinging mirrors, and then at the same time was talking about topological defects in the early universe from a theoretical point of view and for me that the idea that a single conversation could cover all of that ground and that one person could be in command of all of those things at the same time that was amazing and I, i think it's not for every subject right if you're in particle physics like there's a very hard line between really doing experiment and doing theory because if you join the experiment there's like rules you can't publish certain things if you're part of the experiment and so i i actually just that seems problematic to me. I, it would be nice if everyone could find the balance between how much theory, how much experiment worked for them. Um, but to your point on the coming from the experimental side, I, I do remember there's like experimentalists Sometimes they hate it when theorists say, Oh, we need theorists to calculate things. And they're like, I can calculate just fine. Like, <laughs> I like, don't tell me I don't know how to do math. It's more the like, it's the new ideas right. and, that, and that the health of the field requires an influx of new ideas, not just new calculations mm-hmm. for, for testing experiments. So I, I think that a blend is, is great. And I think cosmology, that's the great thing about our field is that that blend is very alive and well in a way that maybe other fields have become really split into theory and experiment. Yeah, and I think that is you know
2: something that has drawn me to you know remain in the field, dabble in theory, you know to whatever extent I'm capable of doing it. I'm always trying to have one of my students who is more uh, theoretically inclined, so to speak, and you know thankfully I've had a bunch of phenomenal students and and help to uh, to you know kind of shepherd their careers through through all the different um, hoops they have to jump through. And thankfully they're back on, off their strike. They we broke the <laughs> picket line. Um, but I want to talk about this uh, epic, you know, tweet thread that you had, and it got millions of impressions and and just tremendous feedback and uh, and a lot of attention. And I want to uh, have you explain the predicate for it. What was the sort of impetus? Why did you choose to present it in this way? And uh, how did you maintain your sanity and strength during the month of December? <laughs> I, I can hardly post stuff that other people write not
0: he <laughs> writes, <my> <laughs> writes my tweets um but uh what what, what was the impetus of it how'd you come well, up so I, you know it was one of these things i think a lot about what's important research just for myself and i tell my students to as well um you know i think it's valuable as an exercise as a researcher to know sort of what is what is the what is something that would rise to the level of the best result of a year or the best result of five years the best result of 10 years um and and i I tell them this in the same way that you would think about like what's your best movie of this year? Imagine you're a filmmaker, you know, and you want to know what makes a good movie. We don't have to agree on what the best movie is of all time or even the best movie of the year, but we can probably agree that certain movies are good and certain movies are not so good, and obviously it's nice to aim to make movies that are good if you're a filmmaker. And for me it's the same with research. Like I like I think everyone knows that Einstein's contributions to physics were important, but like you even if you aspire to be Einstein like no one just jumps into being Einstein you have to like have some more modest goals to tick along the way and so I think that's what's often missing for me and the conversation around what's good and bad research is like it's either there's Einstein or there's nothing else and it's like and I was just you know I'm inspired all the time to be like well what's the middle what was the best paper of the past 10 years and then I don't know just suddenly there's something my like, kids have advent calendars and so the month of December is a time where there's a kind of thing. Every day, and I was just like, you know what, maybe it would be just fun to every day of this month, just put one of these kind of ideas out there um, for people to digest and whether they like it or not. I felt like I could, I could do that. It'll be fun. And, you know, it wasn't hard to get 25 interesting papers because i wasn't ordering them to be to be honest like doesn't if it was like i was gonna do the best paper then the second best paper i would have agonized way more but it's just like here's 31 papers i like you know that's not that's not so so difficult right and so we'll uh we'll go through a couple of the the highlights
2: and, and some of them i just really could not agree with you more and some of them i thought like, oh why didn't you leave this one off and um and so we'll talk about the the one you know the the ones that were orphaned the, the great results that you didn't but there was one criterion which was uh it could not have been appeared in this book um <laughs> or this book uh uh nobel dreams or into the
0: impossible mind book. um and why was that what was that choice what so <laughs> so it It might like it aligns with your your uh, missions pretty well, but actually, like the the reason was just to make an interesting list. Like I thought it was like you know it's it's like saying your favorite thing is puppies. Like no one's going to (laughs) disagree with that. Like I thought to be an interesting list, it had to be a list of things that hadn't had the kind of like obvious acclaim that everyone can agree on. Because I'm like yeah, this thing that won the Nobel Prize was a good result. It's like yeah, great, right? No duh. But I thought you know just and again, I didn't just. Nobel prize was the easiest line to drew but I drew some other ones where I was like you know that it's so obvious that everyone would have that on their list because it's so well popularized. And the fun of making a list is to give some light onto things that are sort of less well-known, the same way that if you're a movie critic, like that's why they tend to be less likely to put the blockbuster that made a billion dollars on the list because like, yeah, everyone knows that that movie's out there. And that's why they'll throw in that like weird foreign film that no one's heard of. It was like, this is my opportunity to to sort of cast some light on something I really appreciated. So that that was the, the idea, not because i had any sort of thing against nobel prize winners or yeah, one way or the other but just just an easy Not way like me. to exclude like them me. <laughs> you know i'm a vendetta uh,
2: so where did you start off what was the first tweet and then the last tweet and then we'll get to some of the the ones that uh, we can
0: uh, debate so, so so i started i started with heavy quark effective theory so heavy quark effective theory was this idea that when you're thinking about um when you're thinking about uh states of matter or particularly partic- Particles that are made out of lots of quarks are made out of uh, quarks that include one whose mass is very large. There's a secret trick to understand what, what's going on, which is to kind of treat that one quark like it's infinitely heavy. And this trick has a way of explaining why a bunch of these um, these sort of baryonic states tend to have similar properties, even though they're made out of different combinations of quarks. And this idea was like, this was the first example uh, where someone had taken a theory that's written down and by kind of expanding it in a non-obvious way, made new properties emerge that were not obvious from the beginning. So there's kind of secret symmetries that related different uh, different states of, of, of particles in a way that was, you couldn't have just said, oh, well, we knew that from the beginning and you just made it obvious in some other way. And, and that's the kind of, that, that was sort of the first example, at least in my knowledge of the history of the subject of sort of effective field theory, which is this great thing that has really transformed the field in the past 30 years, where effective field theory wasn't just a way of saying a result that people already knew, but really was a way of rethinking about what physics is about, where, um, by focusing in on the scale of the problem you care about, what is the right way to think about the theory, you really make you know, you really make things obvious that were not obvious before. And so that has happened. There's been many, many further examples since. And that was, I picked that one because I was like, this is the thing that kind of started it all. And um, and um, our colleague Anish Manahar was one of the people who really pushed that forward in the early 90s and has since discovered many other great examples of this kind of like mysterious things that come out of thinking about what the right way to organize physics problems is. And, um, and so that was one where it's like, I picked that one as the first one because it was the kind of thing where I feel like, People who really know the subject know that heavy quark effective theory was important, but like it's kind of niche, like not very many people know it and it deserves much more credit as kind of spawning a lot of development of the field. And then the last one, which will be close to your heart, I imagine, was the age of the universe. Um, this was sort of a, a measurement, and this was, feeding back to a comment about Dick Bond, I really, this was the one that drove me crazy because, because the history is that it was really first definitively pinned down by cosmic microwave background measurements, but Dick would have would, te- would tell me that it was the, the boomerang experiment that, and the analysis that they did around boomerang, uh, which, was, which was before the satellite W map, which usually gets the credit for the measurement, um, that was that was a big deal. But the part three the reason I put it on my list is that when I was uh, in Canada, I worked on a space telescope called MOST. Mm-hmm. And the proposal for MOST, which was made in the 90s, was that they were going to measure the age of the universe by doing uh, astroseismology to measure the age of stars in our galaxies. And when the proposal was made in the mid to late 90s, The age of the universe was so uncertain that that was a compelling thing to do. Like, we literally didn't know, is it 8 billion years or 20 billion years? And so, pinning down how old stars was seemed like a really important problem. And while they were building that telescope, CMV came along and determined the age of the universe to basically 1%. And that suddenly became, overnight, not an interesting question for them. It just obliterates everything, Yeah. Now, to to their good luck, though, at the same time that they were, you know, the fields were evolving, exoplanets came along and a telescope that's really good at measuring very small changes in light of stars, really excellent for exoplanets. So while their age of the universe science target disappeared, exoplanets emerged and so that was like, you know, it's the give and take of science. But but <laughs> um, but I but that one for me is very personally resonant because I was coming along right at that moment. That was right when you were kind of uh, hitting maturity and really becoming
2: coming into your own as a scientist and, and thinking about projects that could them take your So interest. my
0: first yeah. project on most was to do exoplanets. I was the oh, first yeah. person who thought about exoplanets oh. for most. And it was like, it literally as an undergrad, they put me on this because I was like, this was not part of our proposal at all, right. but it's obviously very important science. So it's the example of how new targets emerge in the middle of a project. Yeah. Like you don't just do what the project set out to do. Yep. And so serendipity exactly is a, is a great. That project Sorry. never. So it, it launched, it launched oh, it in did? 2003, yeah, I think on a like... Russian satellite, on uh, Russian mm-hmm. rocket. It was uh, it was one of these converted ICBMs. I think at the time it was the it was the um it was the rocket that had put the most satellites into independent orbits that had wow. ever been done, using that great ICBM technology to hit <laughs> multiple U.S. targets. Words into plowshare. And so they um, they did. They had a couple of high profile papers around astroseismology, um, but um, but they did, and they put some upper limits on exoplanets. Mm-hmm. But but the thing that's really um, challenging with exoplanets is to see a light curve. You need to see the light reflected off the planet. It depends on the exact atmosphere. And so actually, at the time, as an undergrad, I got to work with Sarah Seeger because she was the one who was making these. Two-time um, past guest on the Into the <laughs> yes. and she, um, and so she had these atmosphere models, and so we were using her atmosphere models to to predict what it might look like, and they were so uncertain at the time, it was totally possible that most could detect it, and they ended ended up setting some interesting upper limits, but we unable to actually see them. Oh, impact. fascinating.
2: Okay, well, let's get back to the, the tweets in, in just a minute, but I did want to um, take a detour into a subject that's very, very prominently featured on this channel, which is Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a
0: member FDSE.
2: Three dozen <laughs> podcasts or interviews or webinars with my friends at the PBS FaceTime and, and others saying basically, is physics in crisis? We've had on uh, guests like um, the Sabine Hassenfelder and Neil Turok, the episode is called Physics is in Crisis. Uh, we've had on Eric Weinstein, we've had on many, many kind of iconoclastic um, uh, people, but uh, we've also had on many, many, you know, kind of uh, supporters that physics is doing just fine and uh, we should just stop the histrionics about what's wrong with physics. But let's let's talk about that. How do you react to um, these claims that, you know, physics is is uh, suffering, uh, not to crisis of tensions, those are healthy, we'll talk about those, um, and we'll talk about some unhealthy, you know, maybe uh, corollaries to those tensions that people... Use a tension or a research direction or a lacuna in the Big Bang, you know, CDM model to kind of call doubt, cast doubt upon all of physics or something stupid like that. But we'll, we'll talk about it. I shouldn't say stupid. Strike that. Strike that from the record. <laughs> uh, but, but, um, clickbaity, you know, yes. have, I've been guilty of myself. But anyway, that, um, but let's talk about, uh, physics. Is physics in crisis? What, what, what is this notion that people seem to want to believe almost that we're,
0: we as physicists are, are chasing angels dancing in pinheads? Well, I think I think what I would say is that my as I try to emphasize my my thought process around what's good and bad science, I try to have a very you know nuanced view because it's important for me as a researcher. And so I would say the thing that I so I will first say the thing I agree with, which in this context, it's always it's typically around are we crisis zeroing in on really one field? It's usually like. There's a group of people working on this one thing. Is this one thing going to lead for progress? And the reality is research is very complex. There's people doing all kinds of different things. And so to say physics is not making progress is often just completely ignoring huge swaths of the community that are making real progress. But the part where I would agree with, I would say that I at least agree with the spirit of it is that. particle physics in particular has a phenomena where people tend to kind of, I I describe them in physics terms, they're like bosons. They all like to do the same thing, right? They don't like whereas fermions like to not be in the same state. So if one person's working on a subject in other fields, like one person's working on a subject, like, oh, someone's got that covered. I should go do something else. Whereas in particle physics, it tends to be, oh, everyone's thinking about dark matter. That's the thing I should be working on, dark matter. And it's like, yeah, that's that's a strategy for for research that I find can be problematic when the motivation is just to be part of the crowd. Mm-hmm. Right. And if we don't have good checks on are we making progress, and, and again, we could be making progress, but the question is, is the progress worth the number of people working on it? And so I think in a new we hear about the string theory. Yeah, so I mean, string theory is exactly the, the same, figures. but I want I want I want to spread it because string theory, the criticism is also that it doesn't make contact with experiment. And I would say I don't see it necessarily as just as being an issue of contact with experiment. There's great results that didn't intend to be in contact with experiment when they started that make contact later, and there's some of those on my list on purpose for that reason. But it's it's more just a number of people, right? It's like is this subject so it making so much progress that it warrants the attention to it, or we ignoring subjects that are making real progress and need more people, um, and, and is that healthy for the field? And so. I would say my point of view is at times I'm frustrated that there's not more people working on inflationary cosmology, a subject close to my heart. Um, and and that there's perhaps more cosmo more emphasis on dark matter than maybe I find is warranted. But dark matter I also think is the correct theory of cosmology. All the data and on my point of view is that is absolutely correct and we should definitely look for it. And there's just some, you know, it's around the edges, you know, how much how much attention does it warrant? You know, are setting bounds on models of dark matter that no one in their right mind thinks is the model of nature, a worthy use of time, or should they be exploring more generally? And okay those are, I think, legitimate things to worry about is the health of any field is this, you know, how does sociology affect what people feel they can and cannot spend their time on? Mm -hmm. So I think from that point of view, I agree that there's a reason to worry, but there's a reason to worry all the time right like it's like the 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 hell i mean people would say inflation gets way more attention than bouncing cosmological models we've had an anaegis and and so 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 i would say in that example i i know the field in that case and i would say you know i don't i think there's a lot in this sort of clickbaity way which is like people and i think this is true to most of the criticism which i've come to which is the criticism also tends to paint researchers as as not thinking about why they spend their time on what they do Mm -hmm. and and again they think about it but in this complicated way, they think about it both from like, if I choose to work on this thing, like, and not like, is it going to ruin my career? Um, and and that just being like looking at the job prospects and saying like, hey, there's not a job ad that says, you know, to work on this weird topic, and that might influence what they do. But within the co- within any area that you're working on, you're not oblivious to why you pick one model over the other. So the reason people work on dark matter is is not because they're not aware that it could have been explained by something that's not dark matter. It's because you can look at the, they've thought about the ways in which something is not dark matter might manifest and the data doesn't support those kinds Mm -hmm. of ideas. And the same is true with bouncing cosmology. So all of the people, so from my point of view, I actually think the debate between bouncing cosmologies and inflation isn't the most exciting thing to me, because to me, they both solve the same problem in more or less the same way. Hmm. Like, I don't see bouncing as really that big a deviation from inflation. It, It just slightly different. And I honestly don't care which one it is. I happen to think the data, it's easier to make a model of inflation. Mm-hmm. And then, so I, I work on inflation, but actually a lot of the tools I use would apply equally well to bouncing right, cosmologies. Yeah. So it's not, so I would say like the idea that I have some, I am absolutely, uh, you know, I religiously against bouncing cosmologists for and some deep seated prejudice. I'm like I would be totally fine <laughs> with the bouncing cosmology. If someone wrote a model that worked better than inflation, I'd be right. like, yeah, that's totally fine. I kind of see it like, are you familiar with something called the IKEA effect?
2: No, no. Uh, it's where you um they take people uh and they give them a piece of you know high quality furniture like this, which uh and they give them from IKEA and they say, build this this table. And they build it. And then they have another group or they even the same group and basically the same table, but they just give it to them. And the people that built the table themselves value it 10x <laughs> what the people who yeah, just got it uh, from a, uh, you know, so I feel like people are so invested in whatever paradigm. this is true, you know, power law, independent of what field we're in, but it just so happens that you and I are both cosmologists, um, that we see it, that people are really entrenched in it. And so that's why people like Paul Steinhardt, who did have a lot of, you know, so-called sunk cost, you know, sunk yes, cost absolutely. Fallacy into inflation is so impressive to me that he can pivot, uh, you know, people that come up and just, and, you know, for their whole career have been entrenched in oh, the Big Bang never happened, and all these other things. Um, but, uh, so, let's dwell a little bit more on string theory. Um, the, a lot of the claims that I had on Kamran Baffa, and I've had on Avi Loeb, and Aroquence, mm-hmm. and Sabina, and the the claims that I always hear is that they don't make, you know, testable predictions, they make a lot of retrodictions. And and actually, to be fair, Kamran, uh, you know, he had a wonderful appearance in one of my most popular episodes, I'll put a link somewhere up there, uh, and he said, no, 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 Brian, you're wrong. You know, string theory does make predictions. It predicts that the mass of the electron is, you know, between, you know, 10 to the minus, uh you know, 1 Planck masses to, you know, uh, 10 to the minus 30 Planck masses. <laughs> you know, it's in a range. It makes predictions. It could be, you know, 10 to the 80th. That would be inconsistent. What do you make? I mean, that was, and I asked him, I said, what's like, do you mean something that is a concrete you know, answer the skeptics. We have a saying in, in Judaism. You know, know what to say to a heretic. Oh. <laughs> so tell me,
0: you know, like, how do you react to that? I mean, is that what, what would you use? Oh, so actually, I okay, I am I am, gonna, I am I am not I am I am not going to my PhD advisor yeah. will, will be very yes, upset she, if I if I were just to to, to not defend string theory yes, yes. very very strongly. But to to be honest, like I I don't see the value of string theory in terms of whether it makes experimental predictions or not. Like, I think the attempt to put it into the does it predict particle physics or not, you know, hasn't been very successful. And I know that there's, you know, lots, I, I read all the papers when I was a grad student, of people trying to make models of the standard model. And like, I just, I don't find that to be particularly useful as a scientist who now does not spend most of my time doing string theory. However, I find many results in string theory useful to what I do. And a lot of what's called string theory is you know now you know the the impact is sort of as laying the foundation for the laws of physics that we then use so one one of the examples i i brought up in this um i brought up in in this this list was the um what's called the conformal bootstrap and it's sort of you know, one of the applications is to try to make sense of, you know, what are the s- restrictions on theories of quantum gravity that are inspired by, you know, what we know about string theory. But the exact technique that is being used in that one case to understand quantum gravity and anti de Sitter space, which is what lots of string theorists do is actually also the best way we have to predict what will happen to helium four at this particular critical point yes. that has been measured. And it's one of these things that's like, yeah, they didn't set out when they were thinking about quantum gravity right. to predict what helium Did does. That, that was not what anyone thought they were doing when they were thinking about black holes. But at the same time, like that it, it is making a real experimental prediction there. And like, it, it's really useful in that regard. And so for me, it's more like the value of string theory, as a research endeavor is more in that regard. Like I, as a person trained in string theory, I, so I, as an undergrad, I worked on loop quantum gravity uh, with Bill Unruh and, you know, uh, at UBC. And then I went to grad school and worked on string theory. And I use neither one in my, like directly in my day-to-day work now, but the things I learned by learning string theory inform a lot of what I do. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of just ideas that came out of string theory that you can remove the string theory are super useful ideas and they really change how I think about physics. The stuff I learned about loop quantum gravity has not been useful at all. Right. And so from my point of view, it's like, well, okay. and again, this is the attention thing, right? Like you could say, you know, given how many people work on string theory, has it delivered enough? And I think that's a fair question to ask. But. I wouldn't go so far as to say string theory is not useful because there are many, many results in string theory that have really helped me yeah. understand the universe and come up with tests that we can do in cosmology to understand how, the, you know, how structure was created in you. Good question. When you're looking at,
2: and you and I serve on a lot of committees, you know, we, we have... As I say, we have the hardest three-hour-a-week job in the world. There's no way around it, Dan, right? I mean, uh, we have these committees that meet, you know, every quarter, but sometimes hiring committees, and we have to look forward to faculty, and we get 400 applications for a single position. It's so much more cutthroat than than when you joined, let alone when I joined, you know, the ranks of faculty 19 years ago. I can't believe it. Uh, but, uh, but the point being, do you have, like, a goal? Is there a rubric? Like string theorists wanted and loop quantum gravity, you know, I, I, obviously you're going to say, no, like we don't, we don't exclude anybody. It's based on merit. But, um, but talk about like, because people say, well, there's too much effort going into it, but I can't tell my student, I can't force my student. You have to work on the Simons Observatory or Simons Array, Polar Bear. You can- I can't force it. If they don't want to work on it, they go to a different group, they join your group uh, or do something else. So um, to what extent do we really have any say to the, to the people that say like, there's too much going into this field what do what you, how do you answer that? What, no, so, I, in a practical sense,
0: well, I mean, again, this is where for me, like that, that's it's part of taste, right? Like, mm-hmm. if, if, if you ask someone what their favorite movies are and they're all terrible movies, probably not going to give them money to make their next movie, right? Because you kind of know what they're doing. And so, if I, if we hire someone who I feel has just a nose for interesting ideas mm-hmm. and through that process, it leads them to loop quantum gravity or leads them to string theory. Like I will trust that they have good taste and they know why they're doing it, mm-hmm. but I don't also think that being dogmatic about it, like we will hire someone because we need someone who knows how to calculate some process and strength. Like we don't even need people to calculate anything. As established before, it's right. the new ideas that we care about. So you know, I think to, to what the great thing about our institution is that our theory group is very diverse in the topics they work on, but I think we all have both a common language of effective field theory. So I think that's usually the, the thing. If you don't. Have understand effective field theory, it's hard to know what's an interesting problem and not an interesting problem. So what that subject has done for the world is it took the space of problems and it really organized them in a way where hard problems were obvious and easy problems were obvious and interesting problems were obvious. And so within our group, we all have a collective understanding of that. And so we can all communicate to each other. Some of them, some people were trained to string theory, some of them not. Some of them very critical of string theory, some of them very supportive of string theory. But if you put us all in a room and you say, why are you Working on this problem, they can instantly communicate to everyone else in the room why that's an interesting problem, and everyone will come away going, "Yeah, that's a really interesting problem." <laughs> okay, yeah. And and if, if if you can hire people like that, like that's fantastic. Yeah, like what they work on, like they'll tell you why it's interesting after they figure something out, and that's I think what's important. Now talk about. Uh, let's get back to your tweet storm. Uh, so, any
2: controversial choices? Did you get feedback from uh, <laughs> from, your, from your vast audience? So, hopefully, it'll grow.
0: But uh, uh, anything controversial. So I actually got less feedback than I was expecting. I was, I was expecting to get a little bit more pushback on some of the choices. Um, I would say that the one obvious omission that I had, which was very intentional was, uh, ADS CFT, which is this idea that, you know, quantum gravity and anti-de Sitter space, which is uh, some space that's not our universe is equal, uh, mathematically to, um, a uh, conventional quantum field theory. Um, And this was a, it's like the most cited paper of, I I think it is like the most cited paper in theoretical physics at this point. And, you know, I left it off. It was written in, what was it, 97? Mm -hmm. And I left it off for the same reason I left off Nobel Prizes. Not because I, also because, you know, it, it, again, it evokes so many emotions when you bring up that paper because it's so well known. And for me, I thought, you know, that's, it's. It's so, it's been incredibly useful for things that ended up being connected to experiment, but I'd rather zoom in on the things that ended up being. That that came after that ended up being really useful and clearly progress because everyone already knows about idiocy. Yeah, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then uh, Supernova 1987A that got my eye. Talk about that. What did that? So-, <laughs> so I put that. I I so I'm glad you caught that one because I that was one I was I was proud of to yeah. have on the list and and I, again to 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 connect back to um, to to your many many written documents about the Nobel Prize. Like I, I like separating science from the people that do science. Like the people that do science are important, but what I was trying to get at with the list yeah. is like I don't care about who did it, I care about like the thing that was important. Right. And so putting putting a an event (laughs) and not a paper or not a thing was was uh, useful uh, because supernova 1987A core collapse supernova in the large Magellanic cloud it's the closest supernova we've been able to observe in the modern era where we have technology particularly neutrino detectors and so it was this unique event that a lot of people point to as like the moment when particle physics and astronomy kind of merged into this particle astrophysics because we had the direct observations with light but we also had these neutrinos that came out of the supernova and showed up in our detectors and like to this day like there are many many papers in particle physics every year that are like this new person had this idea but the observation of the supernova in 1987 rules it out because like are, it, it gives us a window into what happened at extremely high densities yeah. um, that we can't make on earth and like it's just luck right yeah. like we have it's not like nobody wrote a proposal for that neutrino thing I mean they might have said oh if we're lucky enough that a supernova happens nearby then we could do something with it but the actual impact on the field has been enormous and long lasting because we don't get supernova like that all the time yeah. and so I that was the one where I thought it was the most obvious the scientific value of the event where there's no like person you point to when you say this was important because this person had this idea it was like just important because it happened right fun fact that supernova indirectly led
2: to me being here because it was discovered uh when i was a you know in the middle of high school or late high school uh, early high school and uh, it was really, you know, kind of surprising. I thought, oh, there's a supernova every century in every galaxy. <laughs> no, we haven't had a supernova in a long time, and maybe that's a good thing. But, um, <laughs> but it was discovered by, uh, I think, Robert Sanduleak, who's an astronomer at Case Western Reserve University, which, uh, okay. as you know from my interview with Stacy McGaw and uh, and Glenn Starkman, that's where he's yes. alma mater. So um, talk about, you know, so the next after kind of CMB, which um, so happened, <laughs> such uh direct... Against, a lot of places so, on their list. <laughs> honorable mentions, yeah. Although that could mean, you know, we're due for more and more Nobel prizes, right? <laughs> Um, uh, talk about the uh, talk about the appearance of you know Susie I mean to some people they'd say oh Susie's rolled out right so wh- to what extent is Susie rolled
0: out and why did it feature so you know it's I did a histogram you know so and yeah. of your tweets and Susie appears pretty frequently so I think the the main tool use of supersymmetry <clears throat> in the uh, the instances on my list is as a tool to solve quantum field theories and and the reason I and the reason I, I like to, to sort of put it in that perspective is that toy models are very valuable in physics, right? Like, and and not even just in physics, like I think the Ising model, which is this model, which we use to understand magnetism is now like used to understand machine learning. Like it's like, they're like these toy models that we can solve and we can understand all the dynamics of are incredibly powerful in every domain of physics. So I'll give you a quote of the story. Steve Kivelson, who's a very famous condensed matter theorist at Stanford. Yeah. Um, I took a, a class of condensed matter physics during when I was in grad school. And at the beginning of the class, we're, like we have really done anything. He said, if you want to be a successful condensed matter physicist, you just pick one of these models. Like It doesn't even matter what the model is. Mm-hmm. And you study literally everything about it. You study what happens when it's a strong coupling, a weak coupling, a high temperature, low temperature. You just do literally everything. And then the rest of your career, whenever anyone comes up to you with a new <laughs> idea, you say, oh, that's just like an icing model when it blah, 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 this happens. <laughs> and, and it was like, it was a very useful comment because that that is the use of these toy models is that they just give you a way to sort of, in a way that you can solve, understand what complicated systems do. Yeah. And so, I, so a lot of the use of supersymmetry, whether or not it's true in the real world, is it allows us to solve for quantum field theories, like what happens in them that we literally can't solve in the ones that are closer to the real world. So we can understand nuclear physics in a super symmetric world mathematically improve all kinds of very important results that help us understand what real world nuclear physics could do or real world strongly coupled systems where it's hard to solve the equations ourselves and so as a tool it's been incredibly powerful um, just as a way to think about dynamics of you know complicated systems absolutely uh
2: so on the next uh, subject that i want to turn to just in a couple of minutes we have before we have to get over to the faculty club for our uh, Friday afternoon scotches, um, is, uh, is our topics that didn't make the list. So sometimes that's, um, even more revelatory than, than obviously you only had 31 uh, days to make these, uh, epic tweet storms, uh, possible. But, um, tell me a couple that you, if you had, uh, to go into, you know, February, the shortest month, uh, by the way, do you know, uh, which month has 28 days in it? All of them. All of them. God, that's <laughs> that's guys,
0: that's smart. Uh, that's one of my dad jokes. Um, what didn't make the list? What, would what you did you put on? So, you do, do you want things that didn't make the list because of my rules or things I would add to the list so I had more time? Yeah, let's do one of each. One for each. Okay, so I would say if I had more. T- so I was, uh, one of them that probably qualifies that I didn't add to my list, not for any good reason, was the study of proton decay. Mm-hmm. So proton decay is um, it, like we have all these really interesting theories that predict that protons should decay. Right. right? And, um, we really don't have a good reason for thinking that pro- protons are stable. And, um, the study of proton decay was inspired by these grand unified theories that predicted it should be there. And it really took off in the eighties. And in the eighties, it really killed a lot of ideas that were at the time very considered, very realistic yeah. to be how the world worked. S-S-S-O-5 um, so five. Yes. I think, uh, the, the sort of early, um, like SU five models SU5. in that are not supersymmetric or dead. The supersymmetric ones are still alive. Mm-hmm. But if we could do better in proton decay, we could really just either find or rule out some of our most exciting ideas for Grand Unified Theories. But they just, it was this example of something that, you know, like it came out of theory, but it's a great test to do. And theory kind of motivated doing a thing we should have done anyway. And and I think think that would have made my list because it was very influential of how people thought about particle physics. It kind of like people thought they were really gonna see it at the level predicted by these early grand unified models. And it was kind of the first thing that didn't go according to plan. Like the standard model kind of came along and everything that it predicted was seen. And I think a lot of people in the 80s thought, okay, you know, we saw the W W boson, we're now gonna see proton decay and everything's gonna go according to plan. And that was the first thing It kind of didn't go as we thought it might. Mm -hmm. And, um. And I think in that regard, you might say like it was very influential, both in a good and bad way. But, but that was like, I mean, it's, it's hard to overstate the kind of sense in which like both, if we ever saw anything, that would be incredible. But just that the bounds that exist now are some of our most uh, sensitive tests of, of physics that we can't see directly. Um, so that was one. I think, I think it would qualify under my rules, but Mm -hmm. I didn't want to dig into the history is very complicated of where do you draw the line. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then one that didn't, that didn't meet it for because it failed my, My my rules that I really love is this prediction that the absence of seeing temperature fluctuations in the in the CMB in the 1980s. uh, meant that there had to be dark matter. Yeah. So there's this great argument. So if you go back in time to when they, you know, first saw the CMB, they said it looks really smooth. Temperature in every direction is the same. But the universe we see is very not smooth. There's lots of stuff everywhere, uh, planets, stars, galaxies. And this had to come out of that smooth starting point. And in a universe that only has the kind of matter that we experience, mm-hmm. you can say, okay, well, the stuff, there's big fluctuations today. There's planet Earth here, not over there. That's a big change in the density. And from what we know, it, the, given when the CM, when we observe the CMB in the history of the universe and where we are today, the temperature fluctuation should be one part in a thousand. It can't be any smaller than that, or there's just no way it could have worked. And, uh, they didn't see it at one part in a thousand. They didn't even see it at one part in 10,000. So by, by 1980, they knew that there was no fluctuation one part in 10,000. And people wrote this paper in 1982 that's like, That means there's dark matter, right? Like, there, like, that's the only thing that I can, that's the obvious thing I can think of that we have some kind of evidence for already. Right. But, like, that's, that's what's going on. Because otherwise, we thought we were supposed to see it. What part of a thousand? We're definitely not finding it. And that paper, so it fails my rule because I had said I was only going to take papers after nineteen eighty three. So, but then the second thing is it's technically cited in the Nobel Prize for people. People's. But people, I mean, it's kind of unfair because people got to like a it's like it kind of like a sense. career. Yeah, you you can't say sense. every paper that people ever wrote doesn't count for the list. But the other thing about it is like if you look at the citation history, it was getting like ten citations a year for you know forty ish years. That just I think that's criminal. It's such a beautiful idea that it really, like, I, I, I just feel bad that it's not getting. It didn't get more attention.
2: Well, speaking of uh, Professor Jim Peebles, uh, invited on the show, he had a great book came out last year. He also had two years ago now, and, um, he had a wonderful paper called "Anomalies in Cosmology," uh, which came out late at the end mm-hmm. of last year, which in which he goes through all these tensions and kind of crises, and but from a real. Obviously, the highest caliber of uh, physicists uh, walking the earth right now. Um, I hope we can talk about that in a part two because uh, and, and other things: so the crises, the Hubble tension, uh, dark matter crisis, uh, other other phenomena that we have, uh, as well as you know, how can we get more and better students uh, around the world to come into physics, and, and what you're optimistic about in physics, and what you're kind of uh, hoping will change in our in our physics, both from the yeah. you know the depth, the breadth, the diversity of of who we. Can appeal to and bring in under the tent, but I, I want to thank you uh, for spending uh, this little hour with us in my audience. And uh, you're going to be uh, definitely an audience favorite. I hope you'll come back again soon. and awesome. We'll talk many, me. many more times. Uh, and I hope I can call upon you whenever there's uh, a calculation. I don't understand, I'm actually not that good at it. I still have to sing the alphabet song to know what comes after R. <laughs> it's, it's embarrassing. Um, Daniel Green, Professor Daniel Green, uh, one of the brightest people I know, Blue is to Flame thinker, uh, uh, you know, in this, in this neck of the universe. Uh, thank you so much for joining
0: Thanks, Brian. This was awesome.
1: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think about the state of physics in a review. Include your suggestions. Professor Keating reads them all. And if you enjoy this thought-provoking content, consider awarding us a five-star rating. For a chance to win your very own macro particle from the cosmos in the form of a meteorite fragment, subscribe to Brian's mailing list at briankeating.com slash list. And remember, always be curious.